Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. It's Tuesday, the 21st of February today. And Alan, you've got some travel coming up. So we thought we'd try to squeeze in a quick episode in which we are going to discuss just one thing, which is to reflect upon Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Because of course, this Friday, the 24th, will mark one year since the invasion. And so we're going to not just sort of talk about the last 12 months, but also look a bit to the future. Um, But let's begin not at the centre of the conflict, but at the periphery. Alan, what can you say about the impact of the war on Australia? I fessed up on the pod before that the Ukraine war has been a steep learning experience for me, Darren. I spent most of the 1980s working on the Cold War and Ukraine simply didn't figure. It was a pretend member of the United Nations, which never voted differently from Moscow. And once the Cold War ended, you know, other issues came along to attract my attention. So I now know a hell of a lot more about Ukraine's geography, history and politics than I did before. And that goes for most of us. Luckily, Australia had a handful of real experts. And when I say a handful, I mean that literally, I think you can only think of the five or or six of them, inside and outside government who were able to sort of help guide initial responses. But the level of detail we now see in general a debate about Ukraine would have been inconceivable in Australia three years ago. And just to make an obvious but really important point, that handful of experts and their knowledge of history and area really helped when you're trying to make international policy. So Australia does need to preserve expertise of you know Africa or the Middle East or, uh, or Europe or, or Latin America. Turning to policy, I don't think there was anywhere else that the Australian government could go other than to offer a full voice in support of uh, Ukraine. Putin's invasion was a blatant violation of international law and norms, and the brutality and suffering has been appalling. It's not just Russia's disregard for the fundamental principles of the UN Charter that matters here. You can go all the way back to the Peace of Westphalia in 1648 to know that rule number one of the international order is don't invade another sovereign country. So I, I was pleased by Australia's support. It's um, you know its, its extent, uh, which has of course gone more beyond purely rhetorical. Now that doesn't mean, by the way, that I don't also hold the view of George Kennan and Spigniew Brzezinski that U.S. and NATO badly mishandled the statecraft that followed the end of the Cold War through NATO's expansion. But whatever you think about that, it doesn't remotely excuse Russia's action. So impact number one for Australia is that we've been drawn back into paying attention to the geopolitics and not just 
the economics of Europe. Impact number two, the war has strengthened our principal ally, the United States, and its leadership after the uncertainty of Trump and the Biden administration's mishandling of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So contrary to expectations, especially Putin's, Washington has held NATO together. It's opened up the prospect, you know, inconceivable of um, Finland and uh, Sweden joining the alliance. It's exercised very effective diplomacy, not just with its allies, but in the UN and and I think with Russia. And it was able to utilise the most creative use of intelligence for statecraft purposes that I've seen. Impact three for Australia concerns China. Now, you know, whatever you think, on reflection, China's long borders with Russia, its difficult history, its continuing interests there mean that I don't think it's surprising that Beijing felt it had to manage a difficult balance. But the extensive agreement that she signed with Putin just before the invasion uh, took place looked like a serious mistake. You know, within days, Chinese diplomats were arguing privately that Beijing had no foreknowledge of the invasion. But more than that, by not maintaining its, you know, very familiar refrain about the importance of sovereignty and non-interference in other countries, Beijing undercut some of its most uh, frequently repeated principles of international order. It also established obvious parallels between Ukraine and Taiwan, which complicated its, uh, its position there and damaged its relations with Western Europe. And, and look, a fourth impact for Australia has been to remind us that our neighbours don't always see the world as we do. Only Singapore, I think, among the ASEAN countries imposed sanctions and criticisms of Russia's actions throughout the Indo-Pacific, including India, were more muted than we wanted. The global south has, you could say, made a comeback And that's another complicating factor for Australia as we try to rebuild a sense of uh, common purpose with our neighbours in Southeast Asia. But um, how have you seen the war, Darren? Thanks, Alan. Yeah, I've been trying to think about this question through what has been surprising uh, or, or at least was not obviously going to happen 12 months ago. And of course, the place to begin is is Ukraine's performance on the battlefield. Most of us believe the experts who said it was going to last three days. Um, I had no reason to, to gainsay that logic. And here we are 12 months later. But then related to that, it is notable that the battle hasn't escalated. NATO hasn't gotten directly involved. Nuclear weapons have not been used. Again, maybe not something that was likely, but we should be grateful and note it that it has been a success in being contained you know, on the battlefield in Ukraine. But also my third point on, on, on the war itself, it, it's striking how much it's felt like, I imagine wars in the 20th century felt, like it's soldiers and tanks capturing territory. You watch videos of you know individual soldiers with rocket launchers taking down buildings and tanks, artillery, you know, some missiles and planes, but not this futuristic cyber warfare that 
I don't know, maybe I thought we might be seeing. So that's interesting. I want to echo your point about the divergence of the interests of the global South and that that, that divergence has been meaningful. Not only have you know, many countries not seen any benefit in political condemnation of Moscow, but there have been these strong functional reasons, energy, uh, food, and I think if India and Indonesia as two examples. But I think we should also mention the moral dimension here. You know, many in the global South would say that the West, especially the United States and Europe, have lectured them for years about the need for reconciliation and to push for peace in the conflicts they've been involved in. Well, that's what the Global South is asking for now. They want negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. They want the war to end quickly. And that's obviously not been the West's position. I think maybe it was obvious that there would be a tumultuous year in global energy markets. But I think the long-term impact of Europe's effective decoupling in the energy space is still going to be felt. And that wasn't obvious from the beginning. And the final two points I'd make were ones I made in our podcast that reflected on the year itself. Firstly, the remarkable urbanization um, of the global economic system and especially the global financial system against Russia. But more generally, and this gets to some of the points you made about China, the increase in the in global expectations of the likelihood of major conflict. The, the idea of war is now much more prominent in the minds of publics and elites, especially in Asia, which wasn't true a year ago. Those are all excellent points, Darren. Like all of us, I've been reading lots of prognostications about how the war is going and how it might end. And we saw just yesterday uh, President Biden make that surprise visit to Ukraine. I hear people who I like and admire arguing that even talking about peace is a betrayal of the Ukrainian people. Now, I don't have the knowledge or the background to judge the experts on whether the sheer weight of Russian numbers will prevail in the war or whether Western arms supplies can make a sufficient difference to Ukrainian capabilities. I do know that the prospects for negotiation on either side don't look promising. And given our track record on Iraq and Afghanistan, I'm sceptical about anyone's capacity to judge the outcome of military conflict. So in the absence of knowledge here, why don't we turn to theory? What would international relations theory tell us, Darren? Well, I'm glad you asked, Alan. There, there are at least three variables. Uh, look, look I'm, I am serious here. I really do not think that that sort of microanalysis of what's going on on the ground is going to, or, or, you know, which weapon systems are working most effectively are going to help us much. I do think we need to take a longer, sort of higher view of all this. And, uh, and that's where theory comes in. So please don't, don't think I was being uh, unkind about IR theorists. Never, Alan, never. And look, I think this is where theory can be very useful in just helping us organise the types of information we need to answer these questions or in helping us even pose the questions in the first place. And there are three big buckets that we need to think about. And these are really kind of variables that look to explain why wars start as well as why wars end. The first category is 
broadly termed information asymmetries, which boil down to disagreements about battlefield strength and resolve. In this case, Russia thought it could win quickly and at an acceptable cost, and so it invaded. And maybe despite the initial failure, given the fragility of Ukraine and its economy, and as you said, Alan, basic size asymmetries, Putin may still think he can win. And until the two sides have a similar consensus on what that strength and, and war outcome could be, you've got a problem. The second is about enforcing peace agreements, the difficulty of enforcing peace agreements. Because let's say Putin offered a peace deal now, maybe where Russia keeps Crimea and the parts of the Donbass that it still controls. What's to stop you know, Putin using the next few years to restock his military and invading all over again? Or flip it over, let's say you're Putin, you're going to be worried about Ukraine joining NATO or maybe even just the European Union. And so even if you conclude a peace deal, that threat will still remain live to your interests. And so you may judge that you need to finish the job now on the battlefield. And the third factor is domestic politics. Here, it might be true that Putin's grip on power is more endangered by withdrawing from the conflict than from continuing the fight, despite its terrible cost. Meanwhile, on the Ukrainian side, it's quite possible that any space for concessions from them in, in order to achieve a peace agreement was extinguished by the brutality of the Russian actions, including probable war crimes in places like Bucha. So you've got three big problems, none of which has yet been resolved. And this is more so a dynamic situation. If Ukraine continues to mount successes in the months ahead, and it seems in the past week it's been quite successful for them, or at least Russia has failed in its latest offensive, then President Zelensky may refuse a peace deal unless Russia, for example, gives up Crimea as well. And indeed, if we just look to the past weekend's Munich Security Conference, the Ukrainian foreign minister was asked what victory meant for Ukraine. And he sort of separated between the short term and the long term. He said in the short term, he described a full restoration of Ukraine's sovereignty, which we assume must mean Crimea included. And in the long term, he said three things. One, compensation for the war. Two, the prosecution of war crimes and other atrocities. And I'd note that he got strong support from the Estonian prime minister on that point. And third, he said, Russia must change. Right? Now, how do you fit all that into a peace deal? Like, how, on what, in what universe is Putin and his you know, government, his regime going to agree to that? So the point here is that instead of clarifying information asymmetries, point one, success can actually see one side raise its war termination offer, the minimum bargain that it will accept, which of course in turn makes the other side less willing to agree, even though it's losing. And so the war continues. One final point on China. This week, Washington US government alleged that Beijing is very close to supplying lethal weapons to Russia to aid its battlefield effort. And if we assume this is true, it would be because Beijing is assessing that Russia is weak and does need the help. But either way, if China does proceed with this, you have to think it's going to be a significant decision. Like it could affect the trajectory of the war, but it could also, you know, spark a further effort to support Ukraine from Europe and from the United States from the West. So that could change the dynamic in unpredictable ways. Any more thoughts from, from you on this, Alan? That was really interesting, Darren. I just want to say something really general. There's a very real danger, 
and I feel it personally, that my own tendency when I'm looking at international events like this is to analyse them and to organise them into contexts. And that sometimes can make the personal suffering involved in armed conflict feel more distant than it should. Here, contrary to all our expectations, we have interstate war again at the centre of Europe with people being killed and maimed and homes destroyed. The US uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Milley, publicly estimated that uh, Russian and Ukrainian military casualties were around 200,000 with 40,000 civilian deaths. And Ukraine, unfairly, seems to bring this toll home to us more than, say, the events in South Sudan do, because it's it reminds us much more of our own lives. But one of the reasons I became a diplomat and why I think foreign policy is such a critical part of statecraft is that its mission, in the words of the preamble to the United Nations Charter, is to, quote, save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind, and to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights in the dignity and worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women and of nations large and small, to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained, and to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. So, I mean, that still inspirational. And however much states ignore those commitments, however much they've been trashed during our lifetimes, it's really important that faced with suffering like we're seeing in Ukraine and elsewhere in the world, we do remember those objectives and do what we can. And when I say we, I mean Australia and Australian policy to help uphold them. End of sermon. Well said, Alan. And I'm grateful you went there because I also want to raise, I guess, another issue that expands the aperture of, of, of our discussion beyond sort of narrow questions of strategy and battlefield success. And that's coming from one of the more interesting pieces on the war I've read in recent months, which was a short piece uh, on the Foreign Affairs uh, magazine website. I don't think it appeared in the printed edition. Um, and it was late last year, and it's entitled fighting while female. And the author is Olga Olika, who works for International Crisis Group, a place I was lucky enough to spend some time working many moons ago. Olika highlights that Ukraine has been explicitly emphasising its feminist credentials in fighting the war, bringing attention to female soldiers fighting, male soldiers doing non-fighting things like cooking, sending prominent feminists to the US to lobby for more weapons, and indeed watching some of the videos from the Munich Security Conference. Again, you see a strong female presence there. Now, this narrative obviously stands in very stark contrast with Vladimir Putin, who seems, I think we can all agree, to be the very embodiment of the concept of toxic masculinity, leading a country that also appears to be highly patriarchal. And 
I'm reminded in thinking about this of one of my favorite academic papers to teach, um, which was published in 2006 by Dominic Johnson and many co-authors. And it's published in the field of psychology, but I teach it in a class on international relations theory. Now, it's an experiment. The authors design a lab experiment to measure overconfidence and especially overconfidence in war scenarios. And that's important because overconfidence is a trait, a personality trait that's more likely to lead to less compromise, more conflict and more wars in policymakers. And they find through a very cleverly designed experiment that players who were overconfident and that's measured by your sort of prior assessment for how you'll do in the game versus how you actually do in the game. They find that players who were, you know, more overconfident were firstly almost entirely men. And it was the overconfident players who carried out unprovoked attacks in the game. And while overconfidence wasn't correlated with testosterone, it was over it was correlated with narcissism. And so, you know, it's a very interesting, you know, I mean, this war is so patently being driven by men. I think it's interesting, I think, to, 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 to recognize that. Now, getting back to the article by Olika, you know, based on her research, despite the narrative coming from Ukraine, the reality does fall short of that. Um, and like many societies, of course, Ukraine is not alone on this. Ukraine continues to struggle with outdated attitudes uh, about gender roles. And this manifests in many ways in Ukrainian society, even in the context of the war. But nevertheless, like the, the narrative itself is a sign of progress to be noted, I think, you know, positively. And we can hope that, you know, if the country can emerge somewhat whole from the war, that it will spur greater reform in Ukrainian society. But then to get back to your first point, Alan, it is, of course, vital to emphasize the specific experiences and vulnerabilities of women and children in this conflict and how terrible they are. Okay, well, let's wrap up there and finish with reading, listening and watching. Alan, what do you have for us this week? I was in Brisbane last week attending a China Matters oration at the University of Queensland by our ambassador-designate to Washington, Kevin, Kevin Rudd. Unlike a lot of recent discussion, including some from uh, from Kevin Rudd himself. This wasn't focused on US-China relations and on geostrategy, but on the internal ideological, social and economic drivers of Chinese foreign policy under Xi Jinping. It was a reminder of what an excellent analyst the newly minted Dr. Rudd is, and it's well worth reading or listening to on on YouTube, and we'll have the link on our homepage. And also a reminder of some of the tensions his appointment will create, uh, as we discussed in our first episode of the year, Alan. Um, I've got a music recommendation. I recently had the extraordinary good fortune to come across the work of the American musician George Winston. I've recommended the Italian composer and pianist uh, Ludovico Einaudi before, and while I'm still working my way through Winston's catalogue, it's his piano work as well that I'm utterly in love with. The album to start with is called Summer. It was released in 1991 and features a mix of tracks, some written by Winston and others are covers, including uh, works by Pete Seeger and Randy Newman. This music will wrap you up in a warm glow and transport you to a peaceful place 
which I find especially helpful and restorative while battling the small but not insignificant Canberra peak hour traffic, Alan. Anyway, um, we're going to do one more thing today, which is our intern, uh, podcast editor and researcher, Walter Kanagi, also has a recommendation for us today of a very worthwhile book to read. So, Walter, thank you for joining us. What do you have for us this week? Thanks, Darren. I have what I believe it is a very timely suggestion. It is a book titled Backfire, How Sanctions Reshaped the World Against U.S. Interests. And it's been written by Agathe de Marais, the director of the Global Intelligence Unit at The Economist. And in this book, she draws the attention to the limitations and the side effects of sanctions. And she argues that sanctions are effective only when, one, they have limited purpose, two, they deliver results quickly, three, they target a vulnerable country, and four, when they are well-coordinated internationally. And we can all see that this is very rare to obtain in reality. Although I think that the main purpose of sanctions is signalling, I think that this book is a very good call for caution and for a renewed attention to diplomatic tools of statecraft. Well, thanks very much, Walter. And that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Walter uh, for research and audio editing today. And of course, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you in a few weeks. Thank you.